The Vatican further restricts the traditional Latin mass in a new document, and the Jesuits hand down a ruling on one of their own, accused of sexual abuse. But questions still linger about the Vatican's involvement in the case. The papal posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal, plus liturgy expert Peter Kwasniewski, are here with analysis. And TV producer and author Roma Downey joins me to talk about her new book, Be an Angel. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's begin. The Dicastery for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments at the Vatican issued a document this week confirming and clarifying restrictions on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. What is the Vatican trying to achieve here? With analysis of this story and more, I'm joined by the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. And we have a special guest, liturgy expert and author of The Once and Future Roman Rite, returning to the Latin liturgy after 70 years in exile, Peter Kwasniewski also joins us. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. I need to start with this latest document, a so-called rescript, that uh, states the following regarding Pope Francis's uh, Guardians of the Tradition document and the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Here we go. It says there are dispensations specifically reserved to the Apostolic See. Here they are. The use of a parish church or the erection of a personal parish for the celebration of the Eucharist using the Missale Romanum of 1962, the old Latin rite. Uh, the granting of a license to presbyters ordained after the publication of Modo Proprio Traditiones Custodes to celebrate using the 62 Missale Romanum. And should a diocesan bishop have granted dispensations in the two cases mentioned above, he is obliged to inform the dicastery for the divine worship and discipline of the sacraments, which will evaluate the individual cases. Uh, that comes from uh, Arthur Cardinal Roche, who is the prefect of that congregation. Uh, Father Murray, it appears the Vatican is effectively doing away with the discretion of the local bishops in all aspects of the old Latin rite. What is being done here canonically? Well, in canon law, when Rome or the Pope issues a decree or an apostolic constitution, uh, the local bishop has the power, according to Canon 87, paragraph 1, to dispense from provisions uh, according to the pastoral need in his diocese. And in Traditionis Custodes, which was the apostolic constitution concerning the old, the traditional Latin Mass, the Pope said, don't use parish churches, don't create new parishes specifically for Latin Mass, and that priests who are ordained after this constitution, you need to consult Rome before giving them permission. But it was consult, it wasn't get permission from Rome. Now that's all been changed. So this rescript is really new law, and it goes in the direction of depriving bishops of the rights they enjoy in canon law to make pastoral decisions based on what they see. Now it's fascinating because, uh, you know, 
Traditionalist Custodes was issued on the basis of a survey in which we were told that there's a lot of dissatisfaction among the world's bishops about the traditional Latin Mass. But the fact that bishops were allowing it to continue in their diocese indicates the opposite. So I think this is a Roman right. effort, sad to say, to further marginalize, restrict, and banish Latin Mass people. And these are precisely a group of practicing Catholics who are very obedient. So I, I find this to be mm -hmm. very distressing and not according to what the Pope has always said, go out to the marginalized and help them. Yeah, Dr. Kwasniewski, um, as, as Father alluded to there, this really evolved from questions raised by the bishops who uh, charged that the congregation on the liturgy and Cardinal Roche had overstepped his authority here. Uh, the Pope is, is approving this. He's saying, no, he has that authority. How mm -hmm. dire is this? How grave is what Rome is attempting here? Well, it's, it's, it's a very serious matter because, first of all, the rescript is it's rather embarrassing because it's actually patching up uh, all of the problems that Cardinal Roche was creating by seizing authority in his own hands that he didn't actually have. I mean, this the canon lawyers have exhaustively shown that what when he was asking bishops not to use Canon 87 uh, or, or when he was telling them they weren't allowed to, he didn't actually have the authority to do that until this rescript. So it's already a, a sign of the haste and the, the kind of intemperate um, desire to, to act as quickly as possible to extinguish this perceived threat of the traditional mass Catholics. Um, and, and so even, I mean, the canon law is already in a certain amount of disarray. And I think we can see that the number of documents and the speed with which they're coming uh, is, you know, only gives evidence of what can, what, what could be called a sort of, um, uh, intemperate zeal, right, towards this minority of Catholics. Bob, your thoughts on why Pope Francis, and I guess Cardinal Roche by proximity, why do you think they have this obsession with a small group of pious, traditional, faithful Catholics drawn to a perfectly valid and ancient liturgy that the last two pontificates said is not only legitimate but desirable? What is driving this? Yeah, that's a very good question, because the um, the explanation that we were given for why they had to engage in this limiting of the traditional Latin Mass is that they thought that the people who liked the traditional Latin Mass were a threat to the Church's unity. Um, in, in my view, what, what they've been doing is excessive, and it's excessive in a, a particularly nonproductive way. It's actually introducing a division that did not have to be there. there it's true that the, the traditional Latin Mass is very powerful, and I think that they recognize that by the fact that they've been um, they've been seeking to uh, limit it even further with the, these uh, additional documents. I mean, in a funny way, the, the, the FBI document from my home state of Virginia that began to, to um, suggest that people who follow the traditional Latin Mass are potentially terrorists and, and you know, sort of homegrown mm -hmm. extremists, that, too, recognizes that the, the Mass is powerful. So it's powerful. But I don't see that it, it is a threat to Vatican II. It, I mean, it does actually encourage people to be critical of some things that people have claimed were Vatican II. But in many ways, I think it respects Vatican II, and it's a legitimate, a legitimate expression. It's a puzzle why they believe that this small but, but potent uh, form of the liturgy is something that, mm -hmm. something that is simply intolerable.
Yeah. Well, I, you, you know, Bob, I think you've hit on it. It is the vibrancy. It is the vitality. It's the young face of the church. Look, uh, I, I wonder whether any of these people have ever attended a Latin mass. Uh, you know, I, I have one in a nearby parish to where we go to church, and I can tell you, when you know, if I don't hit it on time, you see floods of children and women in mantillas and daddies holding babies coming out. This is the future of the church. You go to most suburban parishes, you know, it looks like uh, sing-along time at the retirement home. I don't mean to insult anybody, but that's what it looks like. There's a handful of people, the pews are not filled, and there's no crackle, there's no energy or focus on God and, and, and sacrality in that room. There just isn't. Father, what does this say about the role of the bishop who is running the diocese? Where is the synodality here? Is anyone listening to these bishops who want to keep this mass option available to the faithful in his diocese? Well, this is the paradox of the papacy of Pope Francis, and it's a paradox because he came into the office saying he wanted a decentralized church, he wanted collegiality. Uh, then he started speaking about synodality, which means we walk together and we talk together and we listen to each other. The exact opposite is happening as regards to the Latin Mass. Bishops are being deprived of their right in canon law to make pastorally wise and sensitive decisions about how to apply restrictions that, quite frankly, uh, most bishops, at least in this country, uh, didn't think were necessary. I mean, when the Pope issued the document, Traditionis Custodis, there was no, you know, uprising of approval and, let's say, expressions of joy coming from the bishops of the United States and or other countries saying, well, at last mm -hmm. now we can restore the unity of the church. In fact, it was just the opposite. So bishops are saying, why in the world would I want to evict mass-going Catholics who, as you say, are young, have children, are believers, why would I want to evict them from a parish church? My parish church, as many bishops will tell you, are pretty empty these days. And when people are going to Mass, why, why be hostile? So it is a paradox, but it's not just in this matter of liturgy. It's in other areas. The Pope has taken away from bishops the powers granted after the Council mm. in the Reform Code of Canon Law, having to do with religious institutes and starting diocesan orders, uh, there are all kinds of procedures mm -hmm. in which bishops are basically being told, Rome makes all the decisions, you have to implement that. That's not how an apostolic church deals with pastoral sensitivity and pastoral utility. Yeah, well, they went from, you know, the bishops in this new rescript, they're really cast as not uh, the guardians of tradition, but the guardians of restriction. I mean, they're restricted. You know, you have to abide by these restrictions. That's your job. Peter, there are 24 churches in communion with Rome, 24 rites, um, uh, you know, and, and I know there's a huge diversity of unique liturgies out there, again, in communion with Rome. Why is the Vatican so unconcerned with stamping out those rights in the name of unity, but so hyper-focused on this one ancient right upon which the whole enterprise, it seems to me, stands? Yes, indeed. It's a very good question. And, and it's, it's especially a good question because when you look at all of these different traditional rights, most of them are Eastern rights, but there are some in the West, too, like the Ambrosian rite. They often have much mm -hmm. more in common with the traditional Latin mass than they do with the Novus Ordo. Um, the Anglican Ordinariate, for example, which is a type of the Roman rite, you might say, they celebrate Mass ad orientem, 
they use the Roman canon. They use uh, they use chant. Um, they do and they and they use some the old offertory prayers, or at least that's an option that they're allowed to use. So there are many things that mm -hmm. that these other rites have in common. So what is the reason? I'm afraid to say, but I think it's true because you all you have to do is read what Cardinal Roach said when he spoke to San Anselmo, that that there is actually a group of people in power in the church right now who think that Vatican II changed the theology of the mass, changed the theology of the liturgy in such a profound way that the traditional Latin mass, which the church used for centuries and centuries, going back over a thousand years, that this is no longer compatible with the super dogma of Vatican II, uh, to use an expression of Joseph yeah. Ratzinger. And if that's what they think, and if that's what's really driving this, that would be a serious theological error. This is not really, I think, about pastoral issues. This is about theological mm -hmm. issues. You know, Bob, you know, I keep going, and Peter, I'm glad you brought that up. I keep going back to Pope Benedict's uh, correct observation. Um, uh, and this, from this came the reconciliation of what he called the extraordinary and the ordinary form of the Roman rite. He said what earlier generations held as sacred cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. You were just in Rome last week. What were you hearing regarding uh, the traditional Latin Mass? And recall that these are the same people, and I want to remind the audience, these are the same people in Rome who are pushing for a new Amazonian rite, which we covered during the last synod. Yeah, there was a lot of nervousness about what was happening. Some people were hoping in Rome that the the the, the preliminary criticism, for the criticism prior to the actual publication of the rescript, might cause the Holy Father and Cardinal Roche to hesitate uh, in what they were going to do. As it turned out, of course, that, that wasn't the case. I think one of the things that, that is, is so very disturbing to a lot of people in Rome, and I, I think I'd have to say in the United States as well, is that it gives the impression of that people who prefer that traditional Latin Mass, which you rightly say, Benedict said, cannot be simply declared out of bounds because it was it was a holy right. expression of the faith in the past. But I think it, it puts people on the spot, whether it's bishops, whether it's parishes, whether it's individual priests, it kind of makes them look guilty until proven innocent, that they're going to have to yeah. submit requests to Cardinal Roach, who's going to have to tell them either uh, yes or no. Now, we can hope that he's going to be generous, but I, I would have to say that all the indications are that if you do this, you're going to put yourself under suspicion. And it goes against the, the, the basic value that you're innocent until proven guilty. And in, in Benedict's eyes, you had the right to do this because it had always been recognized as a valid right. Right. Mm -hmm. By right of their ordination, they could celebrate, you know, this mass or, or, or the Novus Ordo. It was, a, it was the, up to... The, the celebrant, up to the priest himself. Um, I want to share with you an opinion tweeted by one of the U.S. bishops this week. Get your reactions. Um, th this is uh, Bishop Tobin. And he says, the way the Vatican is dealing with the traditional Latin Mass does not seem to me to be the style of God, in quotes. Pope Francis himself has emphasized that those who are attached to the traditional Latin Mass should be, quote, accompanied, listened to, and given time. That's Bishop Thomas Tobin of Providence. Peter, um, your quick take on Tobin's thought here, and what of the inconsistencies in what seems to be a full court press against an ancient and valid form of the liturgy? 
Yes, well, Bishop Tobin is absolutely right. And in fact, if you look throughout all of the writings of Pope Francis, he is constantly saying things like that. Let me just give you a short example from September 26th, 2021. The Pope wrote, the Holy Spirit does not want closedness. He wants openness and welcoming communities where there is a place for everyone. We are called to build an increasingly inclusive world that excludes no one. I mean, and you can, mm. as I say, you can find quotations like this all over the place. What is going on? Well, I mean, again, it, it looks rather sinister because if the Pope really believes these things, if he's not being hypocritical, then he must be saying those Catholics who are attached to ancient ways of doing things, that they find more spiritually fruitful for themselves and their families and more productive, more fruitful of vocations, that there is something morally or doctrinally wrong about what they love, about what they're doing. Yeah. What does that tell us about the continuity of the Catholic Church over all of these centuries? That yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, Bob and or Father Jerry, I'm going to go to you and then I want to go to Bob. Why we talked about driving young people from the pews, but there's something else here that I want to touch on, and it is the parish setting. What Rome is really doing is saying, we don't want you in the parish setting. So they are creating a rupture, it seems to my eye, and then saying, look, clutching their pearls over the rupture that's happening. Well, you're driving these people from the parish setting and sending them underground. Isn't that what's happening, Father? Yeah, it's a basic violation of church order. There is no reason why any parishioner should be thrown out of his parish church. Absolutely none. Uh, the fact that Cardinal Roach and the Pope don't find the old mass to be, you know, useful or fruitful or for them, you know, a good expression of, of how we should pray, that opinion you can have. I think it's not a good opinion. I would like to discuss it with them. But for, you know, please, for the love of God, don't turn around and tell, you know, a family of 10 who's been going to the Latin mass for the last 30 years that you and your children have to get in your car and drive somewhere else because you're not going to be able to have mass at your parish church where your children were baptized and made their communion and all the rest. This makes absolutely no sense. It's a persecution of Latin mass Catholics, plain and simple. And it can't be justified mm. by saying, well, this is going to help promote the mission of the church. This is damaging the church. It absolutely is. And in the United States, where there's a great love for the Latin Mass, I think most bishops would say, Holy Father, please, put a stop to this. Yeah. We do not need a, a now Rome to tell people, get out of your parish churches if you like the old Mass. Bob, what would you advise bishops who are watching? What should their posture be? I mean, on the one hand, I'm thinking that FBI document you just raised, there's a part of me that thinks Roche and company are basically taking names and addresses to see which dioceses, which parishes are corrupted by this filthy, dirty old right. And, and they, want, they all have a running record of who's who. Does it make sense to even plead the case and say, please give us permission to say it in our little parish? Yeah, what's going on, and Father said this quite eloquently, is it's the marginalization of people who prefer the traditional Latin Mass. And as we know, that this papacy has been all about bringing in people from the peripheries and the marginalized, but it's crea actually creating a marginalized group by telling them you cannot, in your normal, every Sunday parish, have the celebration of the TLM. In other words, we're now, I mean, I live in Virginia, and people are now holding Latin Masses in uh, industrial parks and warehouses and, you know, in a, in a few cases in shrines and whatnot. 
Th this is exactly the opposite of what we thought the Holy Father wanted to pr promote. And as I said earlier, this, this creates a division where there didn't have to be one. If I were a bishop, and right. I, I thank God that I'm not, um, but if I were a bishop, I would say that it, it would be good to talk to our other bishops in the United States and maybe pre present privately, it doesn't have to, have to necessarily be publicly, but privately to the Holy Father to appeal to his sense of fairness and just say, look, if people are telling you that in the United States, the people who go to the traditional Latin Mass are threatening church unity, which is what you basically say is the reason behind these moves, we're here to tell you mm -hmm. that, at least in our diocese, in our parishes, that's not the case. That actually people get along quite well, that either they go to the Latin Mass or they go to the Novus Order. I think that has to be explained in a non-confrontational but forceful way in Rome. Whether it would make any difference, I don't know. But I, at this point, I just don't see any alternative. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, we thank you for your insight also uh, along the way here. And Bob and Father, before I run out of time, the Jesuits issued further restrictions on one of their own. A priest and artist, Father Marco Rupnik. Uh, Rupnik has been accused of sexual misconduct with nuns, men, and has already been barred from public ministry. In a statement issued on Tuesday, the Jesuits say they have received, quote, several new accusations against Rupnik since the story broke in December, and that the new accusations have a high, very high degree of credibility. So now, in addition to being barred from public ministry, the order has barred him from artistic activity, despite the fact that his mosaics are present in churches all over the world. Father Jerry, according to the AP, uh, 15 more individuals have come forward with new accusations against uh, Rupnik uh, of, of spiritual, sexual, and psychological abuse. The question is, who lifted his excommunication, Father? The congregation, the pope, both? Your thoughts? You know, according to canon law, that excommunication for absolving a partner in a sin against the Sixth Commandment, that is, can only come from the Holy Father. He can delegate it and has delegated it as an ordinary matter to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, so those, uh, it's either the Pope or the head of the Doctrine of the Faith who issued that, unless the Pope delegated someone else to do it. Uh, the Holy See has not told us who lifted the excommunication. The Jesuits told us that the excommunication was lifted the same month that it was imposed, mm -hmm. and the head of the Jesuits said, after Father Rupnik had repented. Well, I doubt there's any repentance, because the Jesuits also just revealed that Father Rupnik would not cooperate with this investigation, which revealed, you know, when the word several's used in a press release, I think three or four, it turns out to be 15 people. So 15 more yeah. credible ac accusations made against this man, um, and he won't cooperate with it. You know, the, the Father Superior of the Jesuits can order him to go before the tribunal. He doesn't, he can't order him to answer questions. That would be a violation of conscience. But he could certainly have the investigator sit him down and say, Father Rupnik, here are 10 questions. Question number one, what is your answer? Get it on record whether Rupnik will say nothing or will answer it. I mean, they've got to be forceful here. We're talking about a priest who over decades used his priestly authority to inflict grave harm on innocent people who were in religious life. Uh, we're treating this mm. as, as simply just a matter of history. No, this is a real threat, and the punishment needs to be given, because the community needs to know. Priests who use their power to inflict sin, their sin on, on an innocent person, they can't stay in the priesthood. They have to be removed if found guilty. Yeah. And I hope that's what happens in this case.
Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's what should happen. But the good news, Father, he wasn't saying the Latin mass, so it's okay. Uh, Bob, the Jesuits are considering further disciplinary measures against Rupnik. Um, is it curious to you that this story dropped on the same day as the Latin mass restrictions? And why the copious mercy in this case, but faithful families are cast out of their parishes for preferring an ancient version of the liturgy? You have a very suspicious mind, Raymond. Uh, I, I do indeed. I will not comment on that. Uh, look, I do want to say this about Father Rupnik, that this is a, 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 this is a case that even goes beyond, I think, the moral turpitude. I, I, I don't want to make a judgment until we have further facts in. But we've seen this in other cases before, of Jean uh, Vanier with Larche in France, uh, mm -hmm. with the, the legionaries. There's something that is demonic in what he actually did, and, and, and perhaps even satanic. We, there, there have been some stories that he used sacred vessels in these sort of sexual rituals with these women. At one point, he tried to get two women to have sex with him together. It, he said it was an image of, of the Trinity for him to do this. And this raises the question, then, what happens to the art, his art that is in, in over 200 places around the world? It's at Lourdes, it's at Fatima, it's in the Vatican, uh, it's in a lot of churches. I, I've seen people say that they can separate the artist from the art. And it's true that artists in the past have been less than sterling moral characters. But in this instance, if you were a person who was abused or you knew somebody or just you know about this case, how are you going to feel about sitting in a, a parish or a shrine um, and you see these images that were produced by a man that you know was into some kind of deep spiritual engagement with dark forces. This isn't simply a moral, moral mm. failure, in my judgment at this point. I hope I'm wrong about that. But from everything that we're seeing, this really, it's part of the darkening of the moral nature of the, the postmodern world that we see not, not only out mm. in the secular world, but inside the church itself. And I, I think something mm. radical is going to have to happen as a result. Yeah, well, uh, Father, I'll give you the last word here, but Bob raises an excellent point, though I am distressed that he won't comment on my, my curious and well-framed question, uh, which I think is based on some fact, but we'll get to that next time, Bob. Um, Bob makes the great point that as you pray, and this is kind of riffing on Benedict, as you pray, as you worship, so you live. The church is the liturgy, if you will. What does it tell us that a man like Rupnik is given all of this, um, all repeated acts of mercy and forgiveness, but people who are attempting to be faithful and are fruitful and are, and are, are there every Sunday and are keeping the doors open are treated like trash. What does it tell us? And is that in any way linked to the way in which we are praying? Well, let's just say this. Sad to say, in the Catholic Church, you have the same celebrity culture as you do in the secular world. So important and famous people who appear on television and, you know, are art artistic stars and this and that and have all mm -hmm. kinds of followers. Uh, they do horrible things and then it's covered up. You know, Massiel's accusation took a long time and a lot of courage on, on Cardinal Ratzinger to finally get them resolved. And even he mm -hmm. wasn't thrown out of the priesthood. Jean Vanier, as, as Bob mentioned, he committed a lot of crimes. These were covered up. Uh, when you are sitting in a chapel now, knowing that Father Rupnik is, was this basically demonically inspired sex abuser of r women religious, uh, are we supposed to sit and there men. and say, but, you know, 
Ant Man too. Yeah, exactly. Now that came out. Are we supposed to sit there and say, well, yeah. he's, you know, his work deserves to be in this church? I think it would be a very good idea to cleanse the memory of Father Rupnik's crimes by getting rid of Father Rupnik's artwork in these churches, and let's restore some normalcy. You know, people not see action, not words. If the Catholic Church is so horrified by Father Rupnik's actions, throw him out, get rid of his art, tell the world people who misuse the priesthood will not be given the benefit of the doubt. They will be punished, and their artwork doesn't deserve a place in the church. Hmm. Gentlemen, we will leave it there for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray. Visit thecatholicthing.org. Uh, and the Once and Future Roman Rite by Peter Kwasniewski is available at bookstores everywhere. Thank you, gents. Okay, to something far more positive. Next month, I am so excited to share with you a new series I've been working on for years. It's the first installment of my Turnabout Tales series, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. It captures a forgotten and hugely important bit of history that is going to inspire kids and I think the entire family. You can pre-order it now at Amazon, EWTN's catalog, Barnes & Noble. We have a motto for the Turnabout Tales series. And again, this is just the first book. That motto is challenges faced, paths changed, history turned. And Edison's turnabout tale is simply incredible, and it happened at a very young age. Get the unexpected light of Thomas Alva Edison for the young person in your life, and it makes a great Easter gift. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details, and I'll announce a tour in the coming days. My next guest is an Emmy-nominated actress and producer. She starred as Monica in the hugely popular network series, Touched by an Angel. She's also the author of a brand-new book, Out This Week, Be an Angel, Devotions to Inspire and Encourage Love and Light Along the Way. And boy, could we use more of that. I joined her at her home in Southern California to talk about why spreading light is as important as receiving it. Here's my exclusive interview with Roma Downey. Roma, you've written this beautiful new book, Be an Angel. You say you want people to live like an angel. What does that mean? Well, you know, in some ways, we are all angels. Um, if we bring hope, if we encourage each other, if we show random acts of kindness to each other. Mm. In the research for this book, I, of course, was back in reading my Bible, and angels are referenced so many times, yeah. like more than you might realize, and often they show up, usually with fear not. Right. Um, so I imagine that there was something physical about them that perhaps was a little was bit otherworldly. <laughs> I was a little bit fearful. If the first thing you're saying is, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. Um, and as you know, for many years, almost a decade of my life, I had the privilege of playing an angel on the hit TV show, Touched by an Angel. So they've been near and dear to me for a very long time. I really wanted to write a book to encourage people to be kind to each other. And so Be an Angel began with that. When I was growing up, Raymond, in Ireland as a, you know, a teenager, in that phase of my life where I was rolling my eyes and, you know, dragging <laughs> myself around, you know, the attitude of teenagers. Everybody knows what I'm yes. talking oh, about. Yes, and so I would, it. you know, maybe be lying on the couch and there was nothing to do and I was bored. And my father, Paddy Downey, God of mercy on him, would say, you get up, you go out, and you do something for somebody else. Come on, up, out. 
Oh. And he would throw us out, like sometimes into the rain, to go. And honestly, it was just a simple thing. Mm. But go and do something for somebody else. And yeah. so those themes are woven throughout, throughout the book. The book. Well, I love that you shatter the image that we have of angels, too. I mean, we think of angels as these kind of, you know, little yeah. cupid doll things that yes. float around, fat little babies. <laughs> no, at one point, in fact, you, you reference them as warrior-ready and battle-tested. Yes, it's true. What about that face of angels yes. that we don't often think well, about? Well, you know, when my husband Mark and I were making the Bible series, mm -hmm. um, Obviously, we had angelic presence in that a number of times, yeah, sure. but most profoundly with Angel Gabriel, who showed up at the Annunciation to visit um, uh, Mary. And in the first incarnation of that scene, we had cast a beautiful, strong, and striking actor who had, uh, as I recall, the cherubic uh -huh. blonde curly hair. And we put him in a rather shiny armor. Um, and sort of white gossamer, uh, floaty, <laughs> ethereal veil, and we put a wind machine on him, mm -hmm. a la Touched by an Angel. I think that was still my aesthetic uh -huh. for bringing Very him nice. to life. And it just, it obviously in this sort of first century setting, it just didn't, didn't work, work at all. And through sort of further conversation and brainstorming, first of all, the armor, you know, we thought how many battles has, has this angel fought on behalf of the Lord and mm. wouldn't he be more, you know, wor worldly and yeah. uh, and so that's, uh, you know, changed yeah. the look of him there and I think, you know, when we think of the angels that are showing up, you know, we might not all be blessed with uh, an angel apparition. We might mm -hmm. drop dead if you saw one, <laughs> right. I don't know, you right. know, Solid or a reality. burning bush or all the ways that God has shown up. Uh, triumphantly throughout the Bible, but each of us has an opportunity mm -hmm. to be like an angel yeah. in just in goodness and kindness towards each other. And honestly, it's almost like it's a forgotten concept. Every time I open my social media or go on oh. Twitter, particularly because people can hide behind anonymous names and the bullying and the mean-spiritness, you think, whatever happens about just being nice and mm -hmm. you know these are not massive calls to action Raymond yeah. these are small doable things you know but it, it really is about daily living and the challenges we face in daily living that's what struck as, as I read it and the seasons of life which you have lived through as a as a, a, a young actress yes. uh, growing up as you did in Ireland which I want to talk about in a moment and then raising your children and then letting them go and be their own people and that that beautiful transition and how we do need God and we do need his messengers and to be his messengers in those different periods of life. I want to talk about Touched by an Angel for a second, which, I, which haunts this book in many ways. And you mentioned at one point that God was really the star of that series. Yes. And Martha Williamson, of course, yes. in the way she shaped yeah, these stories and the way you all embodied them. Tell me about that interplay. What was that like? Did you talk to her at all? Because uh, I know Martha had a hand in shaping a lot of those oh, episodes, yes, and yes. you all were. Was there back and forth about uh, yeah, the direction oh, yeah, of the characters? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we all. I mean, no one, I think, knew the characters that we were each playing more than we did ourselves. You know, and we were playing them for so long. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, on the superficial level, Monica's love of, of uh, coffee and tea, Monica's desire to be barefooted, or her love of a hat, certainly was drawn right from the pages of my own life. Uh, and, you know, you can't see uh, Della Reese's character Tess on screen and not just know that all that sassiness and attitude was Miss Reese herself because mm. she just was sass. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it was, those were just wonderful years and a wonderful opportunity. But we had in every episode, we had a scene that became known among ourselves as the angel reveal scene, mm. which usually was myself having been an undercover angel uh, for the for the whole episode, pretending to be a teacher or a nurse or a policewoman or whatever unlikely job I had that week, um, and helping you know the the person that needed mm -hmm. the was at the emotional crossroads in their life, and they finally say, "I can't do this by myself. I need help," and that was my cue to say, "Well, you know, actually, I'm not a." I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a teacher. I'm an angel and I've been sent by the Almighty with a message for you and here's the message. And then the message was always the same because our because God's love is always constant. And the message was some form of you are loved. God has a purpose for your life. God wants to be part of your life. God loves you. And we would, as a cast and a crew, join hands together before that scene and we would pray and um, I don't I've never been on a set before or since where I have prayed on many as a set but I haven't prayed in a collection of people like that and usually my prayer in that situation was was uh, less of me, more of you, less of me God and more of you and to learn to be a, a vessel for spirit, a you know, conduit. yeah, to be a conduit, mm -hmm. and you know, this is um, uh, earlier today. You and I were talking, and I said that Della was so good at that mm -hmm. that she was the encourager to say, "Yeah, yeah, we're actors, but we've been brought to roles for such a time as this huh. to bring this message to people, and you know, just learn to get out of the way and let huh. let God do the rest." And you know, I still run into people who loved Touched by an Angel, who remember fondly curling up with their mums and yeah. their grandmothers and how it really touched their hearts. Well, you tell the story in Be an Angel of being in a hospital yes. and this woman coming up to you and saying, oh, thank God you've come. Yes. I was praying. So they equated you and your presence with an angel, the yes. angel they were praying for no, in God's right. message that's right, that's right, Raymond. Them. And that was a very moving story because in that particular scenario, when that woman in the hospital, I volunteered at the children's mm -hmm. hospital, when that woman at the hospital approached me, her little baby tragically had unfortunately mm -hmm. just passed. Mm -hmm. And when she saw me in the ha hallway and I tried to kind of be invisible to give them their space, she said, Monica, which was the name of the angel that I played. Mm. She said, Monica, I prayed that God would send an angel for my baby, and here you are. And part of me wanted to say, oh, no, Mrs. I, I'm not an angel. You know, I just play one on TV. But thankfully, I didn't say anything. I just held her and I prayed. When I got back that night to my uh, home, I called Della and I told her the story. And she said, so you're upset, but why are you so upset? And I said, because I don't want to be pretending to be something I'm not. Yeah, yeah. And she said, well, baby girl, 
That lady needed an angel. She didn't need an actress. She mm. needed an angel. And I said, yes, but she thought God had sent me there. To which, of course, Della replied, and who said he didn't? He did. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it just like, it almost took my breath away. Yeah. And from that moment on, I thought, well, how can we be used in a mm. show like this just yeah. to remind people that be they are loved and that they are special? Because like Julie Andrews, I imagine there's a moment, <laughs> Roma, where you go, oh, can I retire the wings for a few weeks? I mean, there must be that yeah, as a well, person, as it's an only, The only thing is, it's like, I'm, I'm not suggesting I am an angel. I'm yes. still not suggesting yes. I'm an angel. Every day I start again, Raymond. Mm -hmm. And me then too. anybody that follows me on social media knows that I am slightly obsessed with sunrise. Yeah, I yes. am up with the rising sun and I do my best praying and my best thinking at the, at the beginning of the day. Because the symbolism, you know, at nighttime, particularly if you can't sleep, and I'm a menopausal woman, so sleep is <laughs> an old friend that I haven't seen for a while. I sometimes lie at night, and things just have a way of, like, if you're worried about something that seems small during mm -hmm. the day, at nighttime it's amplified like a million times if anybody ever has felt that. But then there's something so beautiful. Finally, you come through like the dark <laughs> night of your soul, and then the sun rises, and it's just it doesn't seem quite so bad mm. and you know and it's we have the good fortune to live here mm. by the edge of the water oh. and the sun on the water is lovely and so you know it's just about you know do the best you can till you know better mm. and when you know better do better do that and just you know just every day try mm -hmm. to do the best you can and you know and for me this book was like you know how do we encourage it's really about encouraging each other, you know, that people will know, you know, you say, well, I'm a believer. It's like, well, I can say that till the cows come home. Mm -hmm. But it's like, isn't faith an action too? Like love is an action? Well, that's what I love. It's almost like little uh, stone, stepping stones to sanctity. Yeah. Done in a way that's both inspirational, but there are action Yeah, it's practical. It's very practical. It's a practical thing. And listen, I'm an Irish woman. I've lived in America for a long time. I love America, mm -hmm. and America's been so good to me. But um, the Irish part of me that thinks anything bad happens in your life, we'll have a cup of tea. <laughs> anything good happens in your life, we'll have a, have cup, a cup of tea. Of tea. <laughs> we just ha you come over for a chat. Well, let's make a cup of tea. Uh -huh. So I really, of course, I was drinking a lots of cups of tea while writing this book. But I wanted to write the book in a way that was like, you know, conversational, mm -hmm. like an intimate as if it, it was is. the two it of us, like this. Yeah, as it if it was the two intimate. of us sitting down, having a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And while I hope that gazillions of people find it and read it, I did write it for one person, a person out there that was hurting, that maybe had experienced a disappointment or a broken heart or was grieving the loss of a loved one. I really wrote it that it would be a comforting book, that it would help somebody you don't have to be on a faith journey. You don't even ha have to have faith. But it's like anchor your morning to starting your day in intention, mm -hmm. to starting your day to want to be mindful, conscious, and kind. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this book that if you wanted somewhere to start, that you could start with me. You could start, you could read, I give you a scripture, or I give you an inspirational quote. I share with you a short story of something that has happened in my life, mm -hmm. and then I encourage you to use that theme mm -hmm. 
and maybe take it into your life and do something for somebody else. And let's talk about a few of those. Uh, one, of the, one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, and it pervades this book, is kindness and the need for kindness. And you tell the powerful story of you coming across a little girl in the neighborhood at Christmas time in Derry. <laughs> yes. Tell that yeah. story. Gosh. It, yeah. It's one of the ones, it, it well, really it's stands again, it's out. Well, again, you know, now, of course, I see it. Now, I tell the story as an adult, but I experienced the story as a, <laughs> as child. a child. And, you know, and God bless and God rest my mother, who really, you know, because she had a delicate job in the story of keeping the magic of Christmas alive uh, through the story of Santa. Yeah but also in teaching me the important lesson of Christmas, mm -hmm. which was to have an open and giving heart. So mm -hmm. I lived up in Derry City mm -hmm. in a little row house on a hill. Christmas morning, it was cold. You know, it's not, yeah. wasn't California, yeah. baby. That's right. <laughs> it was cold. But Christmas morning, of course, we all couldn't wait to rush out into the street. There were lots of children who lived on the street to share the toys that Santa had brought us. You know, mm -hmm. I got a new bike, or I got this book, or whatever it was. And this wee girl lived up the street from me, and she was one of seven children, which wasn't unusual in Irish Catholic families, right. particularly at that time. And she had these twin dolls, uh, and she was very happy about them and very proud of them. And the more I looked at them, they started to look very familiar to me. And I thought, I think she has my twin dolls from last Christmas, which had now found a place in the attic at the very top of the house and been replaced by all these new toys. Mm -hmm. So I went running in, in spite of the fact that I got a lot of new toys that morning, I went running up to the attic and I was looking everywhere for these twin dolls mm -hmm. and sure enough they were gone. My instinct was right. Mm -hmm. And I went down to my mother and I said, <laughs> that wee girl? has my twin dolls and my mother grabbed me by the shoulders obviously terrified that i was going to go out and ruin mm -hmm. this child's christmas first of all mm. the child who was one of seven their father had died that year mm. obviously there would have been financial hardship in that family my mother had done what any good neighbor would do and had gone up into the old attic space and found toys that her children no longer played with mm. and donated them. They'd made new dresses for mm. these dolls and they were going to have a new life. But I said, but how did you give her my dolls if Santa brought them to her? Mm. And my mother said, Santa brings a few toys and then parents have to bring the rest. Mm. And so don't ruin that child's Christmas. Look into your heart, Roma Downey, and find a little bit of Christ in Christmas. And so whatever she said worked. I was a young child at the time. My mother died when I was 10, yeah, you were, you were so 10. I was obviously younger than that. But it has stuck with me all these years mm. um, to, ha to look into your heart and find a little bit of Christ there. And, um, you know, I wrote this book uh, Raymond, it's my third book, so I guess I can stop apologizing for not being much of an author, but I still You're feel quiet. like I write, like, you know, it's not lofty, it's not hard to read, it's written conversationally, it's written sincerely. And it's intimate and impactful, intimate. and what I like about it is, look, there are, ton, there are tons of inspirational books that are, you should do this, you should do that, here's a quote, you should do that. The nice thing about this is, 
we're really, it's really a memoir and an inspirational yes. book. It's really both. You're sharing a lot of your yes, journey. Yes, I Some have. of, I, I was unaware of. Did you ever meet Mother Teresa? I know I saw, no, you mentioned her. No, I didn't meet her. I would, uh, I would have loved to have met her. Mm. I did have an opportunity to stand on her. Um, they had a, a, a podium that had a little step on it, uh -huh. uh, a presidential podium. I know this is so random, yeah. this is not in my book. Okay. <laughs> uh, and this may not even make it into your show, well, but I'm talking, That's I'm okay. talking. This over time. Um, you can uh, <laughs> chop where you need, but uh, a few years ago, my husband and I were invited to give the uh, keynote speech together at the yes. National Prayer yeah, Breakfast yeah. Uh, for President Obama. Mm -hmm. And and we did so, and but we decided. My husband likes to be very spontaneous. I like to have a script. Mm. I thought in this situation, a script probably was more advisable. With two of us, we weren't yeah. stepping on each other, etc. So the president's office said we could use the president's teleprompter. But I thought I probably should go down there and make sure. I took my shoes with me because I knew they would give me a couple of inches to see if I could see the teleprompter. Right. Well, sure enough, the president is quite tall and I am quite short <laughs> and I couldn't see anywhere. And so the Secret Service, I got a box to stand on, first of all. I thought, oh, that'll work. Oh, that's good. That would work. Mm -hmm. And he said oh, the Secret Service were a bit worried because the box was a bit wobbly. Mm. And then he says, "Not, don't worry, ma'am, because in the morning when the president's podium come, it has a little built-in step in it, ah. and it's the step that Mother Teresa used. In Be an Angel, you hold up a couple of angels in your own life. Uh, you, we, we talked of Delores a moment ago, and Maya Angelou. Yes. Well, I love the line, and you quote it here, that people never remember uh, what you say. They only remember how you make them feel. Yes, I know. Which it's, is, it's powerful, isn't it? Well, it's true. It's like, you know, because you, you won't remember, you think, you, oh, that, that conversation was right. profound and lasting, but you may forget the words over time, but you'll never forget how that person made you feel. And Maya, I, w I first met her on Touch by an Age. She guest starred right. on the show, and she was a soul sister of Della Reese. They were contemporaries. They'd come up with the same challenges. They'd both overcome. They were both strong, powerful women, both uh, women of strong faith and mm -hmm. both so talented and so Della of course was my adopted mother and they called each other sister so when I met Maya and she had that beautiful strong voice, voice right yeah. she said well I guess if you're her daughter and I'm her sister then I am your aunt <laughs> I was like, so you oh. were adopted again I was immediately embraced into the bosom of the family and then some years later she invited me to her home in North Carolina uh, I was uh, about to put the Bible series on TV and you know we were calling in favors mm -hmm. from everywhere because everybody said the Bible series who's going to watch the Bible on TV and as we now know over a hundred <laughs> <Everybody>. million people <laughs> over a hundred million people God is great uh, tuned in but Maya was doing some uh, uh, she was helping me and she was doing some endorsements on camera for me and I brought a young crew uh, really like a sort of beginner crew into her home and when lunch came I didn't want to bother her into her house we already had invaded her space I brought a box lunch in for my crew and they were eating in the garden and she came out to the the doorway and she said why are you all in the garden is something wrong with my dining table and she brought all <laughs> these young people in and they were all kind of a bit shy and you know and she's you know she's such a presence mm. Uh, but she went round that table 
asking everybody their name, a little bit about them, what did they do, and they, you could see everybody just suddenly rose and, oh. you know, she saw people, she really saw them, she really heard them, and that was such a gift. So they, mm -hmm. I'd say if you found that young crew anywhere and asked them how did she make them feel, you know, she made them feel special. And, uh, and that was just so inspiring. There's another moment you share here, and it is how faith and angels can get you through over very difficult moments. You talk about your son Cameron, yes. who had brain cancer. Yes, he did. Um, and there's a line that I don't know why, I've never paid attention to it in Exodus, and you quote, uh, I am sending an angel to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I've prepared. Yes. How did that light your way during that period? Well, that period of time was certainly one of the darkest periods in our lives. Um, our poor boy was struck down with a, with a brain tumor, and I hasten to add, thank God, he he came through it. He's very courageous, and uh, and he came through it. I think that the experience together as a family strengthened us as a family, um, and it strengthened our faith too. I mean, sometimes it takes a trial by night to, you know, we had to dig deep. We had to go inside, and we, you know, uh, we were holding on to him and holding each other up at the same time. But I do remember driving back from the hospital one day and, you know, I, you know, I just had to pull over to the side of the road. You know, we were, Mark and I were sharing shifts so that there always could be somebody yeah. there. And, you know, we, we, you know, it was stressful oh, to say sure, the least. Sure. And I just pulled over to the side of the road. I'd been holding it together, really, to hold it together in front of Cameron, to hold it together for Mark, who was trying to hold it together for us, and you know, and so on. But I just was overcome in the car, just crying and calling out, you know, like, help us, mm. you know, help him. Mm. And uh, and I just felt, you know, those those angels. Mm. Um, anyway prayer, angels, the Lord, or he was delivered, and we will be eternally grateful. Well, and um, the hands, and, and I mean, really, the through line of the book is, you are the hands and the eyes and the feet of Christ. Yes. You have to also shine that light and be those messengers in other people's moments of darkness and distress. That's right. I mean, that is the through line. There was a beautiful story Shannon Doherty posted yes people might know from 90210 yes and I know you've kind of accompanied her I know her Shannon very well yes she's a very very good friend of ours and uh, speaking of courage you know mm. and and an attitude uh, she's just a truly a remarkable person um, uh, you know we I have and I pray for her and continue to pray for her while she faces her challenges ahead. I want to ask you about something. I, I follow you on social media. Through your light workers, work, yes. you, every week you post the most beautiful meditative, and they yeah, really are just what we were lovely. talking about. Yeah. They thrust you into nature, and it's this, it's your reading and yeah. reading us on, sometimes it's scripture, sometimes it's just peace. Yeah, and listen, just beautiful reflections. Why do you do that? Well, it's just, you know, I feel like that's, um, it really is the essence of what Lightworkers is about. Lightworkers is the production company I started, I don't know, 15 years yeah. ago now, and sort of the banner under which all of my work, uh, and I have a lovely, small, but feisty team, yeah. and, uh, and we just thought that was something that would be special to put out into the world every week. 
um, and you know, for people to share. They're snackable moments, right? It's just yes. like a minute and a half. Yeah. And uh, and we send them out. We post them on Lightworkers uh, on yeah. Instagram. Beautiful. I put them on my own Romadoni Instagram, and the feedback has just been fantastic. Because again, it's just these little reminders, little stepping stones mm. throughout the day of um, of you know of being conscious. Okay, so tell me about the movie you're producing now uh, on a wing and a prayer yes. coming to Amazon. The big deal with yeah, the, uh, it is a big deal. Dennis so Quaid. at the end of twenty one. Uh, I went to Atlanta to produce this film. It's based on a true story that happened in the late 90s. Uh, it, the event actually occurred on an Easter Sunday. So I'm delighted that Amazon Prime is uh, going to stream the movie over the Easter period. Actually, it'll stream, once it goes up there, yeah. it'll stay up there, and it'll stream globally as well. So uh. for the first time in a long time, my family in Ireland will get to see my work at the same time that we're seeing it uh, here great. in America. But it's such a great story. It's so well done. Sean McNamara directs it. Mm -hmm. um, it's about uh, Doug White and his family who got on a small King Air flight out of Fort Myers, Florida with a single pilot. And after they've taken off and are hurtling through the air at 33,000 feet, tragically and sadly, the pilot dies of a heart attack. Oh. And this family are left in this plane and they don't know how to fly it. Oh and it's just, it plays out like an incredible thriller. Dennis Quaid is so good, Heather Graham. Um, it's a story of faith and courage and um, it's a real, you know, I actually had a screening here uh, the other night for Heather Graham, who was in town and hadn't seen it yet. So at the top of April? Yes, April 7. Roma, in the final analysis here, what is the key message you want readers to take from being an angel? Well, I think, you know, we often hear the saying there, but for the grace of God, go you or I. Mm. I think, you know, you do a kindness to someone today, you may be the one that needs mm. the kindness tomorrow. I, um, I just want people to remember that we all belong to each other, you know, mm. and to look out for each other. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that, um, I hope that the, the journey that uh, readers will take with me, um, I would suggest they take it with me in the morning with a good cup of Irish tea, mm. and that you start your day in gratitude mm. um, and set yourself up for a successful day ahead, you know. I see with my kids and their peers, you know, there's so much pressure on our young people today, and comparison is such a thief of joy. Mm. Um, you think, you know, what does success look like? Right. What does that look like? And yet, when you remember to be thankful, even for the small things, mm. uh, it's just enough to reset your heart, you know, mm. to not think what I don't have or the job I didn't get. Right. It's like, well, what do you have? You know, start mm. with what you have. Yeah. You know, anytime I've. It keeps I've you open to. It keeps you open. Raymond, if you woke up today and you think I'm feeling a bit down, you know, I dare you to think of three things that you're grateful for mm. and still feel as down. Mm. You know, set yourself up. Um, and, and create a little sanctuary like this well, beautiful place so that you have a little retreat to go to, whether that's a park or a, yeah, that's or right. a backyard or a that's front right. yard. The, you do need to set yourself away as Christ I did. I think so. I think you prayer. do. And I think you need to set a habit of it, mm. you know? 
I mean, I think you need to anchor yourself to saying, I'm going to do this each morning. That's where a devotional can help. It's like, let this be your kicking off point. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in a faith walk, mm -hmm. whether you've never been churched, whether you're just beginning, or whether you're deep in a spiritual life, mm -hmm. you know, make sure you anchor it to something that you do every day. Mm -hmm. And then it will just become habit forming and it will change your life. Be an Angel Devotions to Inspire and Encourage Love and Light Along the Way by Roma Downey is available in bookstores everywhere and online. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.